today I'm carrying on the series that began a few weeks ago called Oh My God. I know I threw a few people for a loop when I had that title, and then I just keep on doing it week after week, reclaiming these titles. So what we did was looked at the heavens and the earth in which God created in week one, oh, the heavens, and we found out that God had created this massive home for us that's 13.67 billion light years from one side to the other absolutely mind-bending the enormity of God and God's creation. And then in week two, we looked at, oh man, oh man, and we looked at the creation of man, which incidentally is just as incredible. And what I did in that, in those first two messages, is I took astrophysics and biological genetics, and I used scientific evidence that was recent to prove that God created the universe and mankind by intelligent design and not fluke and chance and evolution and all those other things. I had a, a young gal come up to me after the service yesterday or last week and she said, Pastor Mark, why are you teaching us stuff we learn in grade nine science? <laughs> and I thought to myself, I hope they're learning this in grade nine science. I somehow kind of doubt it, frankly. At least they're not doing it the way I'm doing it. And uh, if they're teaching uh, creationism in grade nine, then I'm a happy camper about that. Uh, so this week, my message is entitled, Oh, good Lord. And that's an expression we all know. We know what it means. Oh, good Lord, uh, in our world, the vernacular, it's sort of an expression of surprise, and usually it's one of disappointment. Am I right about that? So I was thinking about this, because growing up, I only heard the expression once from my parents. My mother never swore. Uh, she never used the Lord's name in vain, and she only used this expression once, so I know she must have been very pleased. And so, uh, so here's the story. So I actually grew up right down the street from here on Riverwood, just a few blocks from here, and we had the biggest house on the street, and we had this huge basement, and my dad had a mural painted on one wall. It was probably 35 feet long, and it was of a, a desert scene with cacti and different things. And I loved that room. We didn't call it the rec room. We called it the desert room. And uh, we loved the desert room. And to my, in my mind, I still have pictures of that, that wall today. And I remember one Saturday morning, my brother and I were hanging out, my younger brother, and uh, we, my parents weren't up yet. And normally, you know, when I tell a stupid story, whether it was my doing or my brother's doing, I'll always blame him. So it was his idea. And uh, so he had this idea that what we really needed was to have a mural like that upstairs to match the one downstairs, because who doesn't like a desert scene on your wall? And so we had decided we were going to create this thing uh, using the hallway, which was the longest bare wall in our house. It was a five-bedroom house. And we were going to surprise our parents when they woke up with it. And so, you know, we decided that multimedia was the way to go. So we used crayons and pencil crayons and felt pens and finger paints and everything we had. We just threw the kitchen sink at it. And I know this is going to sound a little immodest, but it was a masterpiece. It was, it was truly beautiful. And I'll, I'll never forget when my mom came out of her room because she expressed that amazement. And she walked out of her bedroom and saw the whole wall painted with all these different mediums. And she went, oh, good Lord. And so I knew she was very pleased because she would never use that, that word in any sort of negative way. Now, my father came out just moments after that and the words he used cannot be repeated in church. 
So, so clearly he wasn't as enamored with it as, as, as my mom was. And so anyway, several hours of scrubbing, clearly it wasn't gonna come off. And uh, so we had to have the wall repainted. And you know, for the life of me, I couldn't figure out why my dad hated it so much and my mother loved it so much. And, and so that's still a mystery to this day. And so today what we're gonna be doing is we're gonna be talking about, about the goodness of God. And, and the fact that he is a good, a good Lord. And so the, the verse that I've been using throughout this series has been David's Psalm, Psalm 8, where he says this. He says, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you were mindful of him or the son of man that you visit him? And what we've been looking at so far is that, that God created the heavens and the earth, as we talked about, and then he went and literally stuck man in the middle of this. And I told you this last week, that the man wasn't made for the universe. The universe was made for man. And all of this that we see, and all of this you see in this, and, and that was, that was what, what David was so caught up with. The, and he was juxtaposing the, this great creation, the heavens and the earth, with the insignificance of man. And realizing that man is actually more important than all of creation. And in a kind of a existential way, we really are the center of the universe. And I, and I know there's lots of people who, who think that already, right? There's an old joke, you probably heard it. How many Trontonians does it take to change a light bulb? Well, only one, and all he has to do is hold the bulb because the whole world revolves around Toronto. And of course, you can tell that joke about New York or uh, you know, your narcissist friends or your teenage daughter. There's lots of versions of this. Uh, my favorite version of it is the drunk. Do you know the drunk one? I bet you don't. This is how it goes. How many drunks does it take to change the light bulb? Only one. He holds the bulb in place and then just keeps on drinking till the whole room starts spinning. <laughs> That's pretty good, right? Right. How, how many contemporary dancers does it take to change a light bulb? Yeah, yeah, I don't know either. After an hour and a half after I left, I, I still don't get it. So <laughs> that's for my dancer friends in the front there. So, so here's what we're going to do. We're, we're, going to, we're going to look at the goodness of God, obviously, but we're going to look at it a little bit different because God's goodness actually flows out of his great, greatness. And when, we, when you look in the Psalms that David wrote, uh, he talks about the greatness of God, but he always, always follows up with God's goodness. He says, the Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. And he goes on and on about how, God's, how God is good. And so his greatness, if we begin to understand his greatness, then we will also understand his goodness towards us. And so I'm going to be looking at, uh, you know, I'm going to do less science today and more theology. I hope you don't mind that. Some of you are, are relieved. And uh, we're going to be looking at a little theological word today called sovereignty. And we know what a sovereign nation is or a sovereign king, that there's nobody above them. We understand that. But in theological terms, the word sovereignty is a very big concept. It's the fact that there's nobody above God, but he is the ultimate uh, absolute power in the universe. He has all the authority and all control over all things. And it's an important word because his goodness flows out of that sovereignty. And when we begin to understand that, it can be a game changer uh, for each and, and every one of us. And the word sovereignty is interesting because it actually doesn't appear in scripture. 
Well, at least not in many of the English uh, translations. My New King James version that I use doesn't have the word sovereignty in it, nor does you know Old King James or anything. But there is one version that does. How many of you read the NIV, the New International Version? It's a great version for reading. And the the translators elected to use the word sovereignty every time it said Lord God in the Old Testament. And so 295 times it appears, sovereign Lord. And they understood the greatness of God and they figured that was the best term to describe it. And the book of Ezekiel, where Lord God appears more often than anything else, it's 200 times, 200 times. It says sovereign Lord in the book of Ezekiel. It's a fascinating read in the NIV because it gives us sort of a gravitas, a weight to it that maybe you wouldn't see ordinarily. And so when we look at the term sovereignty, we rarely think about God's goodness, but in fact, it is God's goodness, and we're going to discover this today, that flows out of that sovereignty. And there's three words that are the attributes of God's sovereignty. These are theological words, but they're not complicated, and you know them. And here's what they are. I'm going to, they're called, in theological terms, they're called the incommunicable uh, attributes of God. But for our sake, we're going to call them the sovereign attributes of God. Because his sovereignty is reflected in these three things. And they're his, his omniscience, his omnipresence, and his omnipotence. And so we're going to go through the three of them. And I'm going to show you how they actually reflect God's goodness. So the first one is his omniscience. We talked about this already, that God is not restricted to space or time. And so therefore, he can be everywhere at once. That is, by nature, the definition of omniscience. And so we're going to look at it in Psalm 139, again, the writings of David. And David actually articulates all three of these omnis. He goes through one after another. And it's just the most beautiful and profound description of these terms you can imagine. And in fact, scholars consider Psalm 139 the greatest of all psalms. And some scholars consider it the greatest of all passages in the scripture. So even if this sermon falls flat, you're getting a good verse out of the deal. So, you know, I can't really lose. That's the way I look at it. So let's have a peek. We're in Psalm 139, verse 1. Listen carefully. We're talking about the omniscience of God. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before you laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. So I'm wondering if you caught it. God's omniscience in that and how he knows everything. And I'm wondering if you caught this, that it says that he actually knew you from the very beginning, and he knows your thoughts before you think them. Did you catch that? He says, I know your thoughts are far off. So before you think that thought, you know what? He just heard that. You said, I, I didn't think anything. Well, you're going to, and he heard it. So he knows your thoughts before you think them. He knows your words before you speak them. He knows your uh, ways before you do them. And he knew that I was going to say, uh, um, um, talk about omnipresence instead of omniscience at the beginning of this. Did you see me mess that up? I gave you the wrong definition, but you don't care because you're not listening anyway. So <laughs> I understand my mistakes when I make it, but I just keep going because I think maybe no one will notice. 
Anyway, we're, we're talking about his omniscience, the fact that he knows all. Now, let me ask you a question. I know we have readers in the room. How many of you are Jane Austen fans? Any Jane Austen fans in the room? Yeah, yeah. Why are they only women? Where are the men? Where, where are the men on this? And, uh, you know, here's, there's, men typically are Jane Austen fans, but I'll tell you something. Jane Austen pioneered a, a new type of novel, a new type of nonfiction, and it was called, written in the third person omniscient. Maybe some of you have heard that term. And the reason that was so unique was what she did was she was the narrator writing in the third person, but she knew and expressed every thought and every emotion and every feeling of the characters in the story. So if you've read, you know, here, here's a couple, Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility. You're, I know you're familiar with those. I've never read the book, so I, I don't know this for a fact. I've seen the movies. I've seen both movies. Do you know why I've seen these movies? I'm a married man. That's exactly, you're exactly, you're exactly correct. I would never read these books. Uh, but I go, you know, you do what your wife makes you do when it comes to movies. And then I drag her off to the born identity. That's what we do. So, so, so the understanding is this, is that the narrator knew what the thoughts were and the intents of people's hearts. God is omniscient. And he knows all our thoughts before we think them, and all our words before we speak them, and all our actions before we do them. And it's fascinating because in the scripture, we find that Jesus, now even though he left some of his divinity behind, some of the aspects of that, we do see omniscience from time to time. It says, and perceiving their thoughts. How did he know their thoughts? Because the Holy Spirit knew their thoughts. And he says, and knowing what they were thinking, he said, and we find this all the way through. Boy, it's pretty hard to pull one over on Jesus. Did you notice that? And uh, let me ask you this, you know, because uh, Judas, we know Judas betrayed Jesus. Here's my question. Did Jesus know Jesus or Judas was going to betray him before he did? Yes. yes, he did. Did he know when he actually chose him at the beginning he was going to betray him? We're not 100% sure of that, but it's probably true. Now, here's the amazing part for me. I want you to think about this. So Jesus knew Judas was going to betray him. Jesus knew he was going to send him to his death. And yet he treated him with the utmost respect and dignity, just like he did with the rest of them. He didn't treat them any different. Now let's put it in a person, personalize this for a moment. If you had a friend or a neighbor, let's say, that you knew someday was going to come in your house and kill you and your whole family, would you be still treating him with kindness and respect? Be honest with me. No, you hate that guy. You'd like to kill him first before he kills you. Uh, there, there's, no, there's no way you're going to treat somebody. But see, God does. And here, this is really important for us to understand. Because if he knows what we're going to do before we do it, we need to recognize that he is, not, he is not treating us the way we need to be treated in any given moment. Because he already knows the beginning from the end because he's already at the beginning and the end. So, so I'll give you an example in case you don't know what I'm talking about. So, you know, have you ever had one of those days where you're feeling pretty good about yourself spiritually? And, you know, let's say you haven't sinned for like two hours, you've done really well on that. And, uh, you know, you prayed that day and you read your Bible and you think, I'm in a pretty good spot with God today. He must be very pleased with me. Well, I've got news for you. He knows what you're going to do tomorrow and what a stinker you're going to be tomorrow and how you're not doing any of those things tomorrow. Don't think for a minute because, you know, that's the fact. He doesn't treat you. If God treated us based on how we performed on a particular day, then that wouldn't be unconditional love. But because he knows your thoughts, he knows the bonehead move you're going to make tomorrow, he knows the dumb things you're going to do, 
And yet he doesn't treat you based on, on how you're doing or what you're doing on this particular day. He's treating you based on who you are, that you are his beloved son or daughter in whom he's well pleased. And that changes everything. And so, so I'm, I'm not, don't misunderstand me. I'm not giving you permission to behave badly. Well, wow, if, if, if he doesn't really, no, I didn't say he didn't care. I just said he's not going to treat you differently just because you're having a bad day or a good day because he looks at the totality of your whole life and sees the beginning from the end. It's like the guy who was praying one day and he said, dear Lord, so far I've had a pretty good day. I haven't sinned. I haven't backbit. I haven't gossiped. I haven't been angry, lost my temper. I haven't been greedy or envious or any of those other sins. But in any minute, I'm about to get out of bed. And from then on, I'm going to need a lot more help. <laughs> right? So I want to tell you a little story from Scripture to really paint this picture. And it's the story of David. If I was to ask you this, David, King David, biggest blunder, what would it be? Yeah, Bathsheba. Most people believe it's Bathsheba. It was a terrible mistake. And so we have, we have David. Uh, he's, not doing, he's not where he should be. He should be out at war. He's not doing what he should be doing. He's looking out a window. He goes in. He, he commits adultery with this woman, forces himself upon her. And then, he, of course, gets her pregnant. And then he does everything within his power to cover it up. Right? He, he lies about it and he conspires about it. Finally, he has uh, her husband, Uriah, killed by sending him to the front. And then he takes her as his wife and marries her. It was absolutely treacherous for a man who was supposed to be a man after God's own heart. <laughs> now, now, here's my question. Did he get away with it? Did he get caught? Why did he get caught? How is he going to hide this from God? What was he thinking? Who wrote Psalm 139? <laughs> David, David was the guy who wrote this, and that where can, you know, that you know my thoughts and you know my actions. What was he thinking? Why did he think for a moment he was going to pull this one over on God? So anyway, the, God tells the prophet, the prophet calls him out, and now he's, now he's hooped. Now, here's my question for you, because in all rights, if we, we sort of look at the totality of how God treats bad behavior, you would think that that would have ruined David. You would have thought that he would have gone down, he would have lost his kingdom, maybe even lost his life. But David repents, and God forgives him in an extraordinary way, and he continues to be king. And not only that, God takes his biggest blunder of his life, and he weaves it into his divine plan. You say, what are you talking about? Well, he married Bathsheba, they had four sons. The first son's name was Solomon, and he became king of Israel. The third son name was Nathan, and I'll tell you why he's important. When you look at the genealogies of these people, uh, that we have Joseph, the supposed father of Jesus, he was in the direct line of Solomon, and we have Mary, the mother of Jesus, who was in the direct line of Nathan. And so God took his biggest blunder, and he wove it into his plan. And this should be really good news for us, because of God's greatness, he is able to show us his goodness, and he knows the beginning from the end. And whatever you've mistakes you've made, whatever things you have done, you need to understand that God will, if you ask him, forgive you, and he'll figure out a way to make it right. They say you can't unscramble eggs. God somehow has a way of unscrambling eggs because he is sovereign. It's like this story of... And this farmer, he's divorcing his wife and he's in court. And the judge asks him this question and says, do you have grounds? He says, of course I've got grounds. I've got four, 640 acres of grounds. 
He says, no, 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 that's not what I mean. Do, do you have a suit? He says, yeah, I got a suit. I wear it to church every Sunday. He says, no, 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 do you have a case? He says, no, I don't have a case. I have a John Deere, a much better tractor than a case. He says, no, no, I don't think you're understanding this. Uh, does your wife, does she beat you up or something? He says, no, no, we get up at the same time every morning. And so finally the judge says, then why do you want to divorce her? He says, the cotton-picking woman doesn't understand a single word I say. <laughs> so the first thing about God's sovereignty that extends his goodness to us is, is his omniscience that he is all-known. The second one is his omnipresence, that he is everywhere at once. And because he's not limited to space and time, like I said, he can be everywhere at once and anywhere at once and is always there no matter what. So we're going to jump back into the psalm. We're just going to keep on reading, picking it up at verse 7. And this is what it says. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into the heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. This is a, an extraordinary picture about how God is everywhere. He says, if you ascend to heaven, he's going to be there. That one's obvious. But he says, if you make your bed in hell, he'll even be there. Well, how does that work? I don't know. But if he is everywhere, then he, he has to be even in hell. It doesn't make sense to me, but that's what the scripture says. He says, if you go to the outermost parts of the sea, I will be there. You cannot flee from my presence. I will always be near you. I will always be with you. You know what? This should be another game changer for you. Because you can't escape his presence. No matter, no matter what situation you find yourself in, God is always there, right smack in the midst of it. And this is why David is so enthralled with this whole understanding of the fact that God is always there and always with him. One of my favorite stories about this is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or as I always call them, the three Jewish contractors, Meshach, Yorshak, and Abungalo. Don't ask me to stop saying that. I'm never going to stop saying that. It's my joke, and I'm going to keep telling it. And uh, so, so anyway, we know the story, so I'm not going to go into it in any detail. You remember these guys were Jewish captives in the city of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar built this huge statue to himself, and he told everybody to bow down. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not bow down, and they would not defy their God to worship another. And what did they get for their efforts? Who remembers? thrown into the fiery furnace. And the fiery furnace was two times hotter, three times hotter, seven times hotter. And so Nebuchadnezzar throws him into the fiery furnace and he's pretty happy about it. He wants to come and look at his, his, his you know, cooking of that day and see how the crispy critters are coming along. And he looks down into the fiery furnace and what does he see? He says he saw four men in the midst of the furnace and they were unharmed and unburned. And he said, did we not throw three men into the furnace? But I see four men walking around in the midst of the fire and the fourth man looks like the son of God. Jesus showed up in the midst of the fire. Why? Because he was there all along. You're getting this, right? You cannot flee from his, from his presence. Wherever you are, whatever hardship, whatever fire, whatever storm you're in, you have to always remember that God is with you. And it says he will lay his hand on you and he will lead you. Boy, this is good news you should be shouting about now, I'm telling you. Thank you for that forced golf clap. Uh, <laughs> I don't mind, I'll take whatever I can get. So, so let me ask you this question. 
Uh, you know, nowadays people don't get lost because they have cell phones with GPSs in them, and wherever you are, you just, you know, look at your phone, and, you know, you know where you are, and you can get wherever you're going. But how many remember, before the days of cell phones and GPSs, how many of you ever got truly lost, like lost, lost, on a walk in the woods or something? How many of you have been lost? How many of you, it was sort of terrifying in the moment? It's terrifying. I don't know anybody who's been truly lost and it hasn't been terrifying. But if you aren't one of those people, put up your hand. How many of you have ever lost a kid in the mall or in Walmart? So you know all about it. It's a terrifying moment. Your heart is beating like a rabbit. And, and, and you know, there's, there's just something that happens to us when we're lost. And I was thinking about this because I've only been lost once in my whole life. And I got, I got lost in the most crowded place in the whole world. True story. Now, and here's how it goes. So a number of years ago, uh, I was on my way back from a mission trip. We were in India, and we were flying out of Bombay. It's now Mumbai today. We were flying out of Bombay. We, we got into the city, uh, and then we checked into our hotel, and we barely got into the hotel, barely got settled in. We only had a few hours because we were just taking a break in the afternoon, and then we were flying out that night. And uh, our team leader said this, how many of you want to go to the world's biggest outdoor market? And you can buy some souvenirs for your friends and family back home. And so, you know, we thought that would be a good thing to do. World's largest outdoor market. Why not? I don't know if it still is, but it was at the time. So we got in taxis and we went to the market. Here's a picture of it. Look at this market. This is the actual picture of that market in, in Mumbai. Uh, it's still in existence today. And it was just thousands upon thousands upon maybe tens of thousands of people, I don't know, just crammed in the streets. And I remember we got out of the taxi cabs. And this just went on for blocks. It was, it was huge. And I remember the, 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 the leader said this, whatever you do, get, don't get lost because we'll never find you. And so I thought, well, man, make sure I don't get lost. And so I was, I was going, we were going along, you know, one shop to another, and I was going along, and, and I was doing what I do, talking. And so I said, well, look at this. I mean, who's going to buy this thing? Nobody's going to buy this thing. And I looked beside me. It was just some strange man. And, and, and I looked around, and my group was gone. Guess what? I got lost. And I thought, well, no big deal. We were moving that way. So I'll just keep moving that way, and I'll, and I'll catch up with them. So I started looking that way, and well, about 15 minutes in that direction, I didn't find them. So I thought maybe they crossed the street, so then I went to the other side, and I came back. Another half hour passes, and I still didn't find them. And then I realized by this time they're probably gone. And I was actually truly lost in a crowd, which is kind of weird when you think about it. But I was completely lost, and all of a sudden I started to panic. I'll tell you why. We were flying out that night. And you say, well, why didn't you just go to the airport? I didn't have my passport. We had to surrender our passport at the hotel. My luggage was there. My passport was there. I wasn't flying out of anywhere. And here was the thing. I didn't know where the hotel was, and I didn't know what it was called. Didn't know the name of it, because we had just checked in. I hadn't paid attention. And I thought, I am truly lost. And I started to panic. And I remember my heart beating like this. And I think, I'm stuck in India. I may have to live here. So it, <laughs> It's a good thing these people are nice uh, because, you know, I, have no, I, I don't know what to do. I was so stuck. I was so lost. I was so trapped in a sea of people. It was sort of weird. And then I had this moment where I thought about this verse where it says, where can I flee from your presence? And then I thought of what Jesus said. And he said, I will be with you even unto the ends of the earth. Well, you know what? Maybe for them it wasn't the ends of the earth, but for me it was. For them it was home. For me, I was in the ends of the earth. And I thought, whoa, whoa, whoa. And all of a sudden, I had this inexplicable peace come over me. And I thought, you know what? I have nothing to worry about. Jesus is here with me. And he, it says that he will take me by the hand and he will lead me. So a calm, just an absolute calm came over me. And I thought, you know what? He's going to help me with this. So I said, Lord, I, I could use a hand right about now. 
And where I'd like to go is to the hotel. So I just had this calm, and I was just waiting and trying to come up with a plan, people going like this and whatever. And then I saw these, these three taxis. They're, they're auto rickshaws, like a motorcycle with a kind of a rickshaw in the back. And I thought, well, I'm just going to go over there, and I'll start over there. So I walked over to these three guys leaning against their cabs. And I said, I'm wondering if one of you gentlemen can help me. I said, I'm trying to get to my hotel. I don't know where it is, and I don't know what it's called. <laughs> But I do know that on the sign, there was a picture of the sun. And one of the men said, I know exactly where you're going, up in. <laughs> and I thought, how could he possibly know exactly where I'm going? But I thought, what choice do I have? So I hopped in. And, uh, and I thought, I don't know how he knows where I'm going. We drove for at least 20 or 25 minutes from our hotel. I had no idea where it was. He said he knew what it was, so I got in. I thought, what do I got to lose, right? So then I thought, how's he going to get out of this crowd? There are thousands of people everywhere. He can't go down the street. You saw the picture of the street. He fired up his rickshaw, and he hit his horn, and he drove straight into that crowd of people. He drove straight into them. I started screaming in the back seat because I thought he was going to kill them or kill me. And those people scattered, jumping out of the way. And he drove at full speed through that crowd. And that crowd divided in front of me like the Red Sea. And I knew if I didn't die, I was getting a miracle. It was a fantastic moment. And he drove me right to my hotel. And when I got there, I said, this is the hotel. <laughs> Thank you. And he charged me $2. $2. <laughs> I thought, that was the cheapest miracle I've ever had. $2. <laughs> and, 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 the, and the point of this story, well, if, to me, it, it settled everything. I've never worried about that again in my life. I thought, you know what? It doesn't matter where I am, what I'm doing. It doesn't matter what situation I'm in. God is always there. And if I ask him, he's going to lead me out of it. <laughs> Fantastic. Another play. Golf clap. Uh, it's like this woman, she comes home and her, and her husband's disappeared. He's been gone for a day or two and she's really panicking. So she goes to her next to her neighbor. She said, my husband's gone missing. The neighbor says, you go, we got to go to the police station and re re report a missing person. So they go down to the police station and they're sitting down. The officer says, now, please describe what your husband looks like. She says, well, he's tall, dark, handsome, soft-spoken and kind. Her neighbor looks at her and said, what are you talking about? He's short, fat, bald, loud, and mean. To which she said, yeah, I know. But who'd want him back? <laughs> All right, gentlemen, don't take that personal. Some, 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 some of you, I wasn't talking about you. All right. So the first, the first thing is his omniscience. He is everywhere. And through that, he shows us his goodness. The second thing is his omnipresence. The first one is his all-knowing. Thank you. I missed it up again, didn't I? <laughs> but you're, you're, you're tracking. The second one is his, his all-presence, that he's all places. And so we have his goodness extended in each one of these. And the last thing is his omnipotence, that God is all-powerful, ultimately powerful, that, that he is in control and authority of everything on this planet. And, you know, a lot of times when we think of his uh, omnipotence, his all-powerful nature. You th what do you think of? You think of dividing the Red Sea, making the sun stand still. You think of healing the lepers and you know, raising the dead and all that sort of thing. But in fact, the greatest miracles are ones he does in us. And if you read through this, because David actually goes through him, he talks about first his omniscience, and then he talks about his omnipresence. And then the last thing he talks about in this verse, and we'll pick it up uh, at uh, verse 13, 
is his omnipotence. And look at the kinds of things he's talking about. He's talking about his power towards you and me and who we are and even how we were created. So verse 13 says, For you have formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the inward lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance, yet being unformed, and in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me. When as yet there were none of them, how precious also are your thoughts to me, O God, how great is the sum of them. And so he talks about how we are a miracle to begin with, fearfully and wonderfully made. This is a marvelous work, each and every one of you. And then he goes on and he starts talking about how our very days are fashioned and that God's plan for our life is all orchestrated. And we often don't think about the fact that God is actually in control of our life. And we think we are, and we actually aren't. And he says, actually, even the, the days of your life and the plan for your life, it's all written in the book. I've actually already seen it. And you might think you're in total control, but you're, you're not actually in control. And that's why the scripture says that a man plans his way in his heart, but the Lord directs his steps. And it creates a few paradoxes in our mind. When you talk about uh, omnipotence in particular, you are faced with a bunch of paradoxes, and I'm only going to go through two of them. And the, and the first one is this, it's the rock paradox. And the rock paradox is this. Well, if God is all-powerful, can he make a rock so big he can't lift it? Now, that's a completely dumb question, but you know what? The answer is actually quite good. Because what we discover about God, and, and he probably could make a rock that he couldn't lift. And you say, well, how does that work? Well, you know, God's God. He can do whatever he wants. So, but that's not the point. The point is that God is self-limiting. That nothing limits God except for himself. And there are things he can do, but he won't do. And it's an important distinction. For example, in the book of Hebrews, it says God cannot lie. Why can't he lie? Because it's contrary to his character, because God is truth. So, you know, could he lie? I suppose theoretically he could, but he won't because it's outside of his character. So God can't lie. It says that in, you know, 2 Timothy, that God cannot deny himself. And he will not do it because, again, it's inconsistent to his character. I'll tell you why this is important for us to understand. Is that if you learn God's word, and if you learn about God's character, you begin to understand that he won't do anything outside that was incongruent with who he is. And so then in a way, I'm not going to say God becomes predictable, because I don't think he is, but what he does is becomes consistent. And then we, we actually know with greater sense how we pray and how we ask God to move, because God in his omnipotence can do amazing things that will be consistent with his behavior. So, so I'll give you an example. So this is a true story. I had someone come up to me one day and they said to me, uh, Pastor Mark, the Lord has told me to leave my wife and marry my secretary. To which I said, no, he didn't. <laughs> and, and, she, and he said, well, how do you know? If God told me this, then how would you say? Because you, he wouldn't tell you to do something like that because it's inconsistent with his word and with his character. 
You're all following this. So, so I'm not being a genius. I'm not omniscient, but I knew that much. I knew God didn't tell him that. There was no way God would tell him something like that. So we kind of get messed up on this. And so we need to recognize that God will always be consistent with his character and his word. The second thing is the free will, and it's related, the free will paradox. And this one we really struggle with because it's simply this, that, that if God is in control of our life, if he's numbered our days, if he has fashioned our, the plan for our life, then we don't have free will. And the fact is that because God is God, he is able to weave together our free will and his sovereignty and somehow make it work in a way that we will never properly understand. And see, this is what the, the Calvinists and the Arminianists, this is, this is sort of a theological argument. You have the Calvinists and they say, no one can get saved unless God elects you to be saved. And so some people are going to get saved and some people aren't because God has decided that. The Arminians on the other side of this theological argument say, no, 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 no. Uh, it's whosoever will. And whoever chooses to be saved, they're the ones and only them that decide to be saved. And these two argue about this, these two poles that seem uh, you know, mutually exclusive, and they argue about it because they can't think like God. And the fact of the matter is, God can cause these two things to work together. He can kind of make a dynamic tension out of his sovereignty and our free will. You say, well, how does he do that? Well, how do I know? I'm not God. I don't, I, don't, I don't know how we would do that, but I know it's true because he tells us that we were chosen from the foundation of the world on the one hand, but on the other hand, he says, whosoever will. And I think the guy who explained it the best was Matthew Henry. He was a commentator, he's a theologian, and he told the story this way. He said, when you get to heaven, you will see a big sign up on the gates of heaven and it will say, whosoever will. And you will walk through those gates as you choose to be saved. And as you turn around on the back of the gates, it will say, chosen from the foundation of the earth. God in his sovereignty is able to hold free will and sovereignty together in a dynamic tension that we'll probably never really understand this side of, of heaven. So here's what's important. Here's where I want to sort of land this thing. Because I think we really struggle with this. How can God have our, our days numbered and our life fashioned? How can it be all written that down? And why would anyone ever die prematurely then? That makes no sense. And it really doesn't make sense. And you know, pastors are the people who do those funerals when people are leaving this world. We're the ones. And I've done many when it's a child or a young person, someone that I just know probably had more years left in them. And I always ask this question because I, I, I know what they're thinking. I, I'm sometimes omniscient. I know what they're thinking. They're, they're sitting out there and they're thinking, why? Why did this person get taken from us? And I'll always say to them when I do a, a funeral of someone who's died prematurely, I say, don't ask the question why. And there's two reasons why you don't want to ask that question. Number one, you're probably not going to get an answer. And number two, you wouldn't like the answer anyway, even if you got one, probably. And so I think that helps people understand that the bigger question for us is, no, no, why did that person leave? But why was I privileged to know them? And what did I get out of that? And what did we gain because we did know that person? And you want to say, what did their life count for? And that's the bigger and the more important question that you ask in a moment like that. Because that other question is pretty elusive. And most of the time, you're not going to get up this side of heaven. So I want to close with one quick story here. So some of you know my, my friend, my good friend, uh, Bruce Martin. He's going to be preaching here in a few weeks, by the way. 
And uh, he was a Calvary Temple pastor for 25 years. He resigned recently. And I like to make fun of him. But in fact, he's one of the finest people I've ever met and one of the best pastors I know. And so now that he's retired, he has a little more time in his hand. And he got a phone call this week from a funeral director that called him up. And they were doing a funeral. They were short a, a pallbearer. They didn't ask him to do the service. They wanted him to be a pallbearer. So being the guy he was, he said, sure, I'll come. So he gets there, and this funeral was a 29-year-old woman that had died. And here's the worst part of the story. They knew who she was. She wasn't a Jane Doe. She had an identity. They knew who she was. But nobody came to claim her body. Nobody claimed her. 29 years old. No friends, no family. Nobody that cared enough about her. And then there was a group home that had heard about this. They didn't actually know her. And they decided if no one was going to claim her, they were going to claim her. So these eight women showed up from this group home and said, we'll take her and we'll decide what happens and, and we'll take this funeral. So they said, first of all, we don't want a religious uh, ceremony. We don't want any preacher. And uh, we're just going to want to just put her in, in the hole and we're going to just talk amongst ourselves and that'll be it. So then Bruce shows up at this. He's one of the, the pallbearers. And when they went out to the graveside, one of the women recognized him as the pastor, a former pastor of, of Calvary Temple. So she went to the funeral director and said, why don't you let that guy say a few words? He probably could say a few words, but we don't want it too religious. So the director went over and said, you know, Bruce, would you do that? And, he, and Bruce said, sure. So, so the, the funeral director took his place as the pallbearer and Bruce went out in front and he led them to the, to the grave and they got to the grave and they put the casket on top. And then he looked at these people, these eight people, strangers of the person going into the ground and he didn't have a Bible, and he didn't have his book, and he was unprepared, and he didn't know her, and didn't know any of these people, and he thought, what do I say? And so this is what came out of his mouth. He looked at these women, and he said, the fact that you're doing what you're doing today says more about you than anything else. The fact that you would care enough about another human being, that you would come to this service of a stranger and mourn her death, just says so much about you, just want you to know what wonderful people I think you are. Well, by this time, they're all in tears. They're all in tears. And then he says, now he's got them, right? They says, would you mind if I prayed? <laughs> so they nodded their head. They're crying. And so then, then he started praying. And he did the committal, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. And he wove the gospel in it and all of this. And then the, the, and the service was done. And, and he told me this story. And I was so moved by it. And I'll tell you why. Because here's this young woman, 29 years old, that had lost her life probably prematurely and died without friends, without family, and probably through some really bad decisions on her part and some probably even worse circumstances. And David said, where can I flee from your presence? There's nowhere I can flee. And in God's sovereignty, he sent eight mourners to mourn her death that day and sent the most distinguished pastor in our entire city to do the funeral. And I thought to myself, that is the God I serve. And the only thing I could say is, oh, good Lord. Let's stand together. So I want to take a moment here and talk to you. With every head bowed, every eye closed, because there may be people in this room and you haven't invited Jesus into your life to be your Lord and Savior. I want to give you that opportunity today. Meaning you don't know if you were to die and to leave this world where you're going. 
And if you're not sure you're on your way to heaven, I want to give you that opportunity because they've said it right, whosoever will. It is a choice you can make. And God has led you here. You're not here by accident. He's led you here. And he won't make this decision for you, but he'll lead you right up to that point. And if today you'd like to make a decision to be a follower of Jesus, I'd like to give you that opportunity. And with every head bowed and every eye closed, if that's you, I want you to just raise your hand. Nobody's looking around. Won't call you forward, won't single you out. Is there anybody today that would say yes? Thank you, all right. Anybody else that would say yes today? Okay. Let's all pray together. Can we do that? Lord Jesus, today I thank you for your greatness. And because you are great, you're also good. And your goodness to me is demonstrated in the fact that you died on the cross for my sins. You rose again on the third day and you forever live to be my Lord. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Today I'm a new creation in Christ. Today I'm a Christian. And I'm on my way to heaven. And I thank you, Lord, that you are truly good. Amen. Let's give Jesus a little shout today, shall we?